be seated. Good morning, church. It's a gift to, to get to worship with you. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Um, we are closing out in the next two Sundays this study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and if you've been with us through the whole series, uh, or if you're just joining us today, my hope, my hope is that we would be blessed when we come before God's Word today. A few information pieces just about being in the room. If you're a guest today, we would love to know that you're visiting. You can just drop a comment online if you're visiting online. Or if you're here in person for the first time, there's an info card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill it out and drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. We'd love to get your contact information, and we promise to contact you in a respectful way. One other piece of information is if you have kids that are in K through fifth grade, we're going to invite them to join us for the latter part of our service today. So we've ordered our service with more music at the end so that they can join us and worship King Jesus with us at the, at the close. And so here's how that's going to work. When we transition to communion, you're going to be invited to go out to the doors uh, to my right or out these doors and then walk to your right and right across from the bathrooms. They're going to be waiting there and, and you can check them out and bring them into the service with you so that they can sing and worship Jesus with us today. Now, um, if this is your first Sunday, this is 11 weeks into the book of 1 Thessalonians and he's wrapping up the book. He's wrapping up this letter to this church that was planted. We find the story of them being planted in Acts chapter 17. Basically, he'd gone there. He'd been run out of town because of persecution, and he's eager to know whether or not they're doing okay, so he sends Timothy back. He brings word back to Paul that they're doing awesome. They're doing great. They're walking with Jesus, and now he's written this letter to them, and this is the closing remarks of the letter. This is his final instruction. So it's like the instructions right before you close the phone call. Don't forget this, this, this. Don't forget these things. This is the last statement right before he gives them the benediction. And so I want to invite you to read God's word with me today and also ask you to pray, God, help me to hear from you. We believe this is God's word. It's authoritative and relevant today as we ask for him to speak into our lives. So as we read it, let's read it prayerfully, starting in verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word, and we ask God that you would help us to bring our hearts and minds to attention as we listen to what it says to us today. I pray that you would help us to not quench the spirit, but to listen, Lord, to what you're saying and to respond with obedience and faith. God, I pray that you'd make us a more faithful people when it comes to rejoicing and gratitude and prayer and listening to what you're doing and seeing the work that you're accomplishing around us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. One of the questions that I feel like was regularly asked of my own life when I was about 20 to 25 years old was, what is God's will for me? What is God's will for my life? And somehow that question can either erode over time because you just get into the, the pattern of what you're doing, or maybe you're wondering right now, what is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do in, in this relationship or with my career or with some big decision that you have in front of you. And so 
Today, we're going to hear from God's Word about what His will is for us specifically when it comes to walking with Him. These final instructions give us this as God's will for us. It's explicit. And it doesn't get into the granular of this is exactly what He wants you to do, but this is exactly what He wants you to do while you wait for those bigger answers. And so we get the answer to that question in this passage, and the gospel does this for us today. So in summary, this is where we're going and what we're going to see. The gospel invites us into a relationship with God where we both express our hearts to him and listen and respond to his spirit. So what does this word say? First, it talks about how our relationship pours out to God. So we're invited into a relationship with him where we both express ourselves to him and we respond to him expressing himself to us through his word, and through his people. And so first, let's talk about what it looks like for us to express ourselves to him, the dialect of God's people. I picked this, this word dialect because all of these things describe something that we might express rejoicing, prayer, gratitude. That's the three commands around what we should do in terms of how we express ourselves, both to God and in the context of one another. It's continual, present tense, always, into the future. This is God's will for you. And then he gives these three things. First, he says, rejoice always in verse 16. Christians have this command and this invitation to reflect the joy of the one who created us. It's the Imago Day. I want to ask you this question before I move any further. Is the God that you know happy? Is he happy? Is he full of joy? Because the God of the Bible is full of joy. According to God's word, he's in the heavens and he does whatever pleases him. That means that there are things that please him. He's pleased. He looks at creation and he's pleased. In creation, he describes him bringing and speaking forth creation in Job chapter 38. And I love how it describes it. It says, Job, were you there when I pulled the, the spans of the earth? And then he describes the soundtrack of creation. The stars and the angels are singing with joy. So while he's speaking everything into creation, he's got the music playing of heaven. The stars and angels are just singing with great joy as he speaks all of this into existence. That's our God. Joy doesn't just come from him creating us in his likeness. It comes from seeing how he's working redemption in the world. He has great joy in redemption, this greatest gift to us in our forgiveness. And in restoration, what we believe will happen in the future. Jesus declares all of these things as good when he looks at creation and he, when he looks at what he's accomplished for everyone who believes there's a foundation that we would build our lives that looks like joy. In fact, he builds this into the pattern of his people. God writes into the, the, the calendar year of his people that they would regularly feast together and gather together and celebrate all the things that God had done to remember it. They would come together. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, when he shows up, he comes out of temptation. He walks into the synagogue and he says this from Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He quotes this scripture, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God sends Jesus Christ to declare this message. There's favor for you. I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. And so there's this great pattern, both of God in creation and redemption and him demonstrating through his life 
that we are invited into this narrative of joy. The reason to rejoice comes from knowing him. If you've ever wondered if, uh, how you can uh, cultivate joy in your life, Richard Foster said that the way that we, we practice joy or we dis- have the discipline of joy is by um, celebrating and, and our God is a God who knows how to celebrate. He loves to throw a party. In fact, it was so annoying to the people that didn't like him that they were complaining, what is this guy doing welcoming sinners? And in response to that complaint, Jesus tells these three stories of three parties in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, first there's a shepherd who loses sheep and he invites some of the neighbors over to throw a party. That's the God that we serve. He's inviting us and commanding us to join him in his joy. Then they tell a story. He tells the story of a lady who loses her coin. And when she finds it, she goes and invites her neighbors over and they throw a party. And then my favorite, the prodigal son comes back from the distant land. And the father says, let's throw a party. So Jesus tells those stories, not just to proclaim This is what God is like, but to invite us to be part of this continual celebration. And so as Paul closes this letter, the first thing that he says is rejoice always. We are to be a people marked by joy who know how to raise up our glasses and laugh hard, loud, and often. We know how to do it because we've been instructed by the one who made us for it. So I want to ask you before I move on. Are you a person of joy that knows how to rejoice? Because that's part of our expression and relationship with God. It's part of the dialect of heaven. It's the dialect of where we're heading. It's the language of those who belong to Christ. And the most important part that we would rejoice in is what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us. That by his self, his, his perfect life and sacrifice, that we would not only be given redemption, but access to God himself. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, it says it this way. Through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So no matter what background you're coming from, Jew, Greek, Slave free, all of us have this as our great gift of redemption. We have access to God, which leads into the second part of the dialect of God's people. They have rejoicing and they have prayer. Look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. This final instructions not only commands that we rejoice, but that we bring our hearts in prayer access to the Father, that we have a solution for every anxious thought in our world, for everything that burdens us, we bring them to the Father, like it says in Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul Miller describes a praying life like this. If you're not praying, then you're quietly confident that time Money and talent are all you need in life. I can't recommend that book enough to you. Prayerlessness, in other words, is this arrogant confidence that eventually it's going to be worked out by you being smart enough, waiting long enough, or gaining enough success or money that you can deal with it yourself. And I would say that in the context of this place 
and in this city, that is really important correction of the gospel. That he's saying, no, I'm inviting you to depend on me through prayer. He goes on to say in a praying life, Paul Miller says this, what do I lose when I have a praying life? Control, independence. What do I gain? Friendship with God, a quiet heart, the living work of God in the hearts of those I love, the ability to roll back the tide of evil. Essentially, I lose my kingdom and get his. I move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. I move from being an orphan to a child of God. And that exchange, guys, that exchange is what we're invited into as believers to move from our independence to dependence, from being independent and an orphan to being a child of God. And his children, it transforms the way that we see our problems from anxiety to prayer and trust. He turns our foundation from grumbling to joy, from sorrow, for all the ways that that he might be present in our lives, that we would acknowledge him and have joy over it. He turns our grumbling to gratitude, which is the last command of our expressions. Look at verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As believers in Christ, God's inviting us to be the most grateful people on the planet because we deserved God's judgment, and we know that. We're a people who everything other than hell is a gift to us, and so we gladly receive it. We receive it with gratitude. As C.S. Lewis put it, everything that we look at with gratitude, how very good of God to give us this thing. How very good of God to give us the people around us in this place and the very breath in my lungs so that you look at your circumstances and you first see what you didn't deserve, God's goodness. Therefore, we have to be grateful. In fact, Hebrews commands it this way. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. For what we've received, we respond with gratitude. For what we haven't received, God's judgment, justice, we respond with gratitude and joy and with prayer and awe and worship. And we know who to thank. One of, the, one of the most empty things that I see in the secular world are those that are godless or do not have a God to thank. What do you do with your praise if you do not know the God who created it all? What do you do with your gratitude? And God invites us to give it to Him. And it moves from these positive uh, cultural statements. I just want to challenge us with the opposite of it. If this is the language of the people who are moving towards heaven... The opposite of those who are moving towards heaven looks the opposite of this. Instead of rejoicing, it's all day grumbling. Instead of prayer, it's anxiety and burdens. And instead of gratitude, it's just complaints. And God's saying, no, this is not what it looks like to belong to my kingdom. Go ahead and adopt my language for yourself. Let me give it to you and help you to speak the language of the one who's calling you out of darkness and into light. And our culture can be the antithesis of all of these things. Before I move on, that is what it looks like to belong to Christ. This is what it looks like. This is a description of how it sounds for God's people to engage and express their response to this glorious gospel and to Christ, to rejoice, to be covered in prayer, and to be always grateful. That is the will of God for you. 
Before I move on, if, you, if any of you walked into the room wondering what God's will was for you, that's what it says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Be grateful in all circumstances. This is the will of God for everyone. So, then it moves from how these people might respond to God in expression to how God is working around them, what he's doing. Not only do we have to be a kind of people who can express ourselves to God in relationship, we have to be the kind of people who are listening to him. That's what God is inviting us into in the gospel, to be people who pay attention to his voice, who welcome it. Look at verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. It turns the tides here. Do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecy. Test everything. These are three ways that the passage moves from our expression to God to listening to God's voice. The first command, not to quench the spirit, is a negative command. It's it's how not to do this. So we want to know what it means before we offend this law of God. And even in the midst of what we have to, uh, in what we could express to him, part of a relationship is knowing how to hear from the person in front of you how to listen to what he's doing. So what does it mean to quench the spirit? First, we have to acknowledge, if we want to avoid this, we have to acknowledge that the spirit is still at work, that God is working in and around us through the witness of his people, through the power of his word, through the Holy Spirit, changing dead hearts to life. John described it in this way. In the Gospel of John, Jesus described it this way. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take on what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, in the future, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal what I'm like, how I work. And so the the role of the Spirit in the life of the church is to reveal who Jesus is, to declare his glory to us. That's how we know anything that we know of spiritual life. Octavius Winslow, a Puritan, said this way. Not a Puritan, sorry. A pastor during the time of Spurgeon, he said it this way. All that we spiritually know of ourselves, all that we know of God and of Jesus and his word, we owe to the teaching of the Holy Spirit and all the real light, sanctification, strength, and comfort we are made to possess on our way to glory. We must ascribe to him. In other words... Everything that you currently know of God through his word didn't come to you naturally. It came by the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And so if we want to honor him and seek him, we have to see that he's working around us, that he's still at work. He's still speaking to us through God's word. And the very idea that we could quench the spirit of God is really fascinating because the spirit is sovereign. It can do whatever it wills. But in this warning, there's this idea that we could either be restricting or releasing the spirit's power in our daily lives. And so I want us to pause and just consider that for a moment. In every aspect of our lives, we could be opening the welcome mat or locking the doors and shutting off the lights. You ever been with somebody that just didn't listen to you? They just could not hear what you were trying to say. Some of you are like, I've been with you. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of ways that we might quench the spirit. Sam Storms in his book, uh, Practicing the Power, it's a really helpful book when it comes to understanding how the gifts of the spirit work in the, the life of the church. He suggests five ways that we might quench the Holy Spirit. 
And I'm going to just summarize them, okay? He, He says a lot about it. But in summary, we could quench the Holy Spirit by diminishing his personality. In other words, he's not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's not an inanimate force. He's spirit and he's personable. He can be grieved. He has feelings and affections and emotions. He makes choices and decisions. He exercises his will in accordance to the Trinity. He exercises them in his desires. The Spirit functions personally. He talks, testifies. He can be sinned against. He can be lied to, testified, tested, and insulted. And all of those ways are present in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is personal. So if you don't see him as personal, it can be a way that we quench the Spirit. Another way is that we neglect his ministry. We neglect what he's doing and how he's working in the church. Now, I've already said this. The principal aim of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. But if we limit the Spirit to that being the only thing that the Spirit does, that's a way to quench the Spirit. His ministry includes making himself known as well. Anytime that you've experienced the presence of God, either in a a worship service or through reading God's word or praying to him, when he makes his presence known, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Third way that we can quench the Spirit is by suppressing the gifts. If we say, listen, all of the, the range of his gifts are not welcome here, that's a way to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the full range of the Spirit's Uh, work in the life of the church. The same way that it's described in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, there's this list of ways that the Holy Spirit is blessing the body through giving gifts to individuals. And if we neglect to welcome those gifts, we're quenching part of the work he wants to accomplish in the life of the church. Fourth way, and I'll I'll be honest, this makes me a little uncomfortable. (laughs) Fourth way that we might quench the Spirit is stifling predictability. Sometimes our worship to God can become so very predictable that we're not open to what God might be doing. If we have a plan and we think that plan is, cannot be interrupted by God himself, then that is not what God wants for his body. And I think a lot of the ways that he wants to break through in our relationships, in small groups, where we would just welcome him. Lord, what are you doing here? What's the ministry that you would have for us today? We are open to that because we had an idea of how things were supposed to go. Or maybe you have some place that you think you're supposed to be, but you're, you want to predict that, that that's, God's not going to interrupt that path. And he wants you to go pray with someone or talk to someone or have a word with someone that you don't know yet. And all of those places, it's a way that we might quench the spirit. And then the fifth way is the second thing in this, uh, this passage, that we would despise prophetic utterances. We quench the spirit whenever we despise prophetic utterances. Now, listen, I'm just going to tip my way through this landmine that's existing in this passage. And I hope to not step on anything. Chances are, though, that if you have opinions about how the Holy Spirit should and shouldn't work in the church, there might be a place where I offend you. And what I want you to know is that as I step through what in the world does this mean, that we don't despise prophetic utterances, I hold my views with a great deal of humility and knowing that maybe, possibly, I could get this wrong, but I think this is what God's Word would have for us today. So what does it mean for us to listen to God and welcome His voice? It means that we do not despise 
prophetic utterances. Now, there's two views. There's probably a myriad of other views. There's two views that I'm going to express here today. One is called cessationist, or they believe that these supernatural gifts stopped whenever the canon of Scripture was complete. And I don't want to get into the weeds of that debate, but I'll start by saying that there are faithful people on that side and there are faithful people on the flip side, which would be continuous, who believe that the Holy Spirit still works in very supernatural ways. Okay? Faithful people, both sides. Some would argue that it doesn't make it completely clear. Some would argue that the, the Scripture makes it clear. That when God's word is closed, nobody has the the capital P gift of prophecy and they're going to give you a word that came from the mouth of God. And so before I get into how we would test everything, which is the next part of this passage, I want us to first consider this question. What is prophecy? What does it mean for us to bring a prophecy from the Lord? It means that we're bringing God's truth and it's coming through a specific human. Sometimes it's warnings, sometimes it's a judgment, sometimes it's encouragement, sometimes it's a correction. But it's God's word coming through a specific person to a group of people or to a person. And so whatever it is, it first has to originate with the messenger. The messenger is, I'm sorry, with the message from God. It's not the message of the messenger. It comes from a higher source. And so the question remains, does God still work in this specific way? Now, before I say anything further, I want you to know that we believe God's word is sufficient. God has communicated to us both through creation, through Jesus Christ, and through his word. And we believe that this word is enough for life and godliness. So that's the beginning of this conversation. God's word is available to every believer. And there's some gifts to communicate how his word would translate specifically into a context or to a person's life. And some people would call those gifts prophecy. I know that that exists, though, that people can communicate specifically how God's word would translate in your specific situation. And so for today, what I would like to argue is that we would say not despising prophecy would mean that we don't despise receiving God's word from others and through others. Okay, so that's an oversimplification of potentially what it's saying, but it's not less than that. It means that we don't despise when God's word comes through us, to us, through other people. Encouraging, warning, correcting. And the command here is not to despise on it or to look on it with contempt. Contempt is that condescending way that you you look at things and think, that's not for me. So we're open to God's voice coming through others. That's how we would apply this word to us today, that we're welcoming God's voice and how it might specifically come to us through other believers. And so we're open to that. We don't despise it automatically. There might be something he's trying to communicate to you through your spouse, through your small group leader, through your friends, through your kids maybe. And what I want to argue to you today is that you should not despise it or treat it with contempt. It would be a sin for us to do so if God commands this is true. Either in our own ability to speak to others, we despise it, or practically we despise coming from others to us. What does it mean? It means that God might speak through you to someone else. It also means that God might be using someone else to speak to you. And all these things have to be tested, which is the next thing. So God doesn't want us to be cynical, but he also does not want us to be naive. Now, 
There's a reason that there would need to be this command to not have contempt for prophecies because there's some things that you probably should test and say, wrong. There's a reason that people needed to be corrected in this or instructed in this because there's ways in which people might abuse this kind of gift. And so how do we test it? <laughs> we can't throw out the baby with that murky bathwater, okay? We got to save the baby. But when we do, we've got to be faithful and not naive. We're God's children and we're discerning. And the way that we discern things is through the scriptures. What does God's word say? So the third way that we welcome God's voice is that we test everything. We're not cynical. We're not naive. We practice discernment that comes from God through his word. The church must be theologically literate enough and familiar enough with the Bible that when you hear something, you can say, ah, that's wrong. Or, I agree. That's according to God's word. That lines up with it. So, let's say you have some impression to speak something to someone else. Or if somebody had an impression to speak something to you. Before you go speaking it, it could be the pizza that you ate last night, or it could be that you just had a weird dream. Okay? The way that you test it is you, you first go to Scripture. There's a few tests I want to run through. First, does it align with what the Bible says? Does the Bible speak clearly about this? Clearly enough that we might speak it into someone else's life. Does it pass the test of Scripture? Does this add something where the Bible is silent? Because if we believe the Bible is sufficient and we're adding to it something in addition to someone else, that would be not passing the test. Does this in any way violate the principles found in God's Word? The second way that we could test it is through the community of faith. So are there people who are faithfully walking with Christ who are standing in agreement with this decision or this Word? Are there people around me who are agreeing, saying, yep, that sounds like the Lord might be telling you to do that or to not do that? And then lastly, does it pass the love test? So Scripture, God's church, historically, and then does it build up or tear down? Does it encourage or discourage? Does it promote unity or division? Does it resemble God's work or the work of the enemy? The end result will be a people who are listening to God's voice ultimately, not listening to what you felt like you might should say to them. That's the end result of faithfulness to this passage, that we would welcome the work of God and God's voice both through his word and through one another. And then the result of that would be that we hold fast to what is good. We choose wisely when it comes to fish and bones. My, uh, uh, my dad and my son are competitive fishermen, okay? And there's something they do whenever they're bass fishing. They have to cull the catch. You know what that means? You've got to keep the ones that are going to cause you to have the most weight so you can win the prize. So when you bring things into the boat, you've got to decide, is this worthy of keeping or do we throw it back? Because you can only have a certain number of fish. And in the same way, God has invited us both to express ourselves to him and to listen to what he's doing so that we can call the catch and decide what are we holding fast to? Because the, the end result would be that those who are in Christ Jesus would hold fast to what is good. We'd be moving more and more into his likeness and holiness. And the kind of happiness that comes with walking with Christ and releasing and abstaining, shunning what's evil. 
In other words, you reject what doesn't conform to Scripture, what doesn't build up, what doesn't encourage and correct us towards holy living. That's the test of everything. It moves us towards Christ to hold fast to what is good, to call what's not working, and reject slash abstain from those things that are evil. And so, I I have this question to ask you in closing. Are you walking with Jesus? Now, all of these final instructions, I mean, it is a a, a list of like six things. You could separate and they would be enough for a sermon. But Paul's writing this group of people and he's saying, here's these things, final instructions, and all of them have to do with this, a relationship with God where you're both communicating to him and you're listening and paying attention to what is he doing in the world. And so I want to ask you this question. Are you walking with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? I'm not asking, did you make a decision to follow him when you were in the sixth grade? That is not what I'm asking. I'm not asking if your parents always took you to that certain church. I'm not asking which church you belong to. I'm asking, are you walking with him? Because the result of a a vibrant relationship with Jesus is that there's this outpouring of joy, of joy and gratitude and prayer and all of your requests become known to God because you walk with him. And and I'm asking, do you hear his voice? Are you walking with him through reading God's word and through prayer? The only way that you're going to test everything is if you're familiar with what he's already said. Okay? That's the only way. Are you quenching the spirit? Is there a welcome mat when it comes to welcoming what he has to say and how he's working in your life? Or have you shut off the lights and locked the doors and said, let's pretend nobody's home. Hopefully they won't notice and keep moving. Are you walking with him? If you're not, I want to invite you to today to hear his voice. Hear him speaking to you. He's so clear through his word. Have you heard him calling? Are there ways that you're trying to shut it out? There's some Some people right now, I know, if there's something that you have a wall up towards, you don't want God to speak into that, and maybe there's things that you just don't want him to mess with. There's spaces where you're like, you're welcome over here, but I don't want you to speak into this. If that's the truth, I just want to invite you, do not quench the Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says this, therefore, as the Holy Spirit today says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, I saw and saw my works for 40 years. And he goes on to say in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm asking, are you walking with Jesus? Are you pouring out your heart in joy? Are you, laying, are you learning the language of where you're headed? Gratitude, rejoicing, communion with God. Are you listening to his voice? Today, if you hear him, don't harden your hearts. And I want to say this for all of us that are trusting in Christ Jesus, here's what I want you to know about this great high priest. In every moment that we, we could have expressed our joy and instead grumbling came out of our mouths, 
in every moment where we held on to the burden instead of giving it to him. He invites us to see him as a perfect high priest, the one who always listened and did what, what he was commanded, who always obeyed, perfect submission. And because of that, he was given the name that's above every name so that every person would bow before him at one point in the future. And today, I hope that you would bow before this great high priest who, who was sinless, who always listened, who always heard from the, within that trinity and obeyed. Are you walking with him? Look at Hebrews 4, 15, and I'll end with this. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he invites us to commune with him today. If you're trusting in Christ Jesus, today, today might be a renewal of that joy. All of heaven celebrates with one sinner repenting. He knows how to throw a party. And he'd love to throw a party over your life today if you brought it to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that it would bring and yield forth the fruit that you desire. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.